it's James Erskine here, presenter of the Rocket Fuel podcast and also proud employee of Rocket, the youth content and youth marketing business. We are in a kind of mid-season hiatus with this season of Rocket Fuel. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some Rocket Fuel retros. We looked at a full episode for last time's Rocket Fuel. This time we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take the beginning bit from one previous episode, the middle bit where they talk about their business from another episode, And then the last bit, the rocket fuel from a third episode. And to choose the different bits, we've got my colleagues at Rocket. So a rocket fuel retro edition. I hope you enjoy it. And all things being well, we'll see you in the next week or two. This is a Rocket Audio production. Hi, I'm Danny, strategy director here at Rocket. My job here is all about strategy. But what does that actually mean? Well, I'm involved in everything from helping our clients to create new ways of engaging audiences, increasing their creativity in their marketing communications, as well as ensuring their campaigns are exceeding KPIs. Rocket Fuel is so important as a podcast as it constantly gives insights into the meisters of our industry. Personally, I've chosen to share one of my favorite Rocket Fuels that features the genius that is Rory Sutherland. Rory is the Vice Chairman of Ogilvy, a columnist for The Spectator magazine and author of the Alchemy series. I was originally inspired by Rory's outlook on creativity from watching his TED talk probably about two years ago, which then led me and a few other rocketeers to go see him speak back live in 2019. Now, Rory has made a name for himself by disrupting ideas generated by normal thinking. Coming from a behavioural psychology background, Rory deliberately dispenses with the idea that humans are innately rational, but rather than that, we are subject and vulnerable to our needs and desires as biological creatures. So this rocket fuel includes stuff like technology, the future of flexible work, the limitations of marketing, young audiences and the state of UK politics. Enjoy. Let's start with some questions around you. Um, Tell us about your journey and and how you've ended up where you've ended up at Ogilvy. Uh, It's now, what, 30 years, uh, 31 years, in fact, this year, astoundingly. So I joined in September 1988. Uh, I joined as a graduate trainee um, at what was then Ogilvy and Mather Direct. And um, uh, so I've done, I suppose, about five different jobs since then, at least, um, uh, very interestingly, I, I decided I wanted to work in advertising on leaving university. I spent one year training as a teacher and decided that I didn't want to go straight into teaching after university because <clears throat> essentially I did my practice teaching and suddenly I had a panic attack and I realized that if I got a teaching job straight after leaving university, I'd spend my entire life kind of in educational institutions, which seemed ridiculous. Uh, so, um, I applied to a variety of ad agencies, and um, I think I got second interviews, um, Saatchi's, perhaps one other. My final job, the only one I, got, I was actually offered a job by, was Ogilvy and Mather Direct. Now, funnily enough, having been through the interview to Ogilvy and Mather Direct, I decided, strangely, I suppose, quite presciently, uh, that I really wanted to work in direct marketing if possible, because the whole business of it being measurable... You know, I'm a bit of a nerd, in yeah. a sense. And so the idea of doing advertising where you could actually measure, compare, and contrast different creative approaches struck me as fascinating. Now, what I didn't really realize at the time was this was pretty much the best place in the world to do it because there was an extraordinary collection of talent at the agency at that time, Drayton Bird in particular. And um, so it was. Um, uh, uh, that was, you know, looking back on it, uh, you know, I was only offered one job, but it was the job I really, really wanted, and it was an incredibly fortunate place in which to start, too. I've read somewhere that, that perhaps they didn't think they'd got the best graduate when they employed you first of all. It took you a while to find your feet. Is that a fair assumption? Oh, no, no, that's very fair. I was, you know, I mean, I've been variously described as slightly unfairly, I think, is the, you know, the worst 
um, the, the worst graduate they ever hired. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the worst account man they ever had. <laughs> Not quite true. I, I mean, in fairness, I mean, you know, uh, there were parts of the job I was, uh, uh, I was appalling at. The organisational part of the job I was absolutely terrible at. And famously, this is true, by the way. There are a few apocryphal stories about my early account handling attempts, which are slightly exaggerated. Uh, but it is absolutely true that I was booked on a time management course as a remedial action and then got the date wrong. Um, that really did happen. <laughs> That's a great story. Well done. Um, so what are the qualities when you're in the workplace that you look for in people around you? Uh, oh, curiosity. It, it really is that simple. I, I, I think one of the reasons I think that I liked direct marketing so much was that because your work actually generated results and you had to explain why one thing worked better than another and, tr and try and find out reasons why this might be. Uh, so at the time, I suppose, you know, there was, I mean, these names may or may be more or less familiar, but working with, say, Randy Hanfelder, that was uh, Drayton himself, uh, Steve Harrison, I, had, I ended up with an art director called Mike Sim. There was an extraordinary um, sort of collection of talent in one place at one time, which made it an absolutely brilliant place to start your working career. Not, not to mention, I mean, David Ogilvy always recommended that a creative, before being a creative, should spend four or five years in direct marketing simply for that reason. You know, direct marketing taught you very, very quickly. This is, of course, before digital and before programmatic and everything else. Uh, it, it, um, uh, it, it, it taught you what worked and what didn't. And that, that was, if you like, um, a very, very early introduction to behavioral science and behavioral economics, because uh, you were in the perfect place to understand that the standard rationalist theories of why people behave the way they do and what incentives they respond to. Um, if you're working in direct marketing, you very, very quickly learned that these assumptions weren't true. And from the early days, me and a few friends said, look, actually, there should be a whole new science about this. And it was, I guess, 10, 15 years before, uh, direct uh, before behavioral economics came along. But the extraordinary discoveries we made, I'll give you an example, okay? Mm. Um, if you ever wrote a letter, for example, offering someone a chance to apply for the American Express card, You'd learned uh, from long experience in direct marketing that you'd end the letter with apply before date. And you'd give people a deadline two weeks in advance before which they had to apply to the American Express card in yeah. a letter. Now, in truth, if anybody wrote in, um, you know, uh, six months later or two years later, you obviously weren't going to turn down a sale. In a sense, the whole thing was a nonsense. It was kind of a charade. Yeah. But by making the offer a limited time offer, direct marketers had long learned that actually uh, that overcomes inertia, scarcity, I suppose we'd call it. Uh, you know, this was the precursor to only three seats left at this price. Sure. That you, you, you got far more people applying for the card if you created a kind of artificial deadline than if you ended the letter by saying, feel free to apply whenever it suits you. And in terms of your work, it's Ogilvy is the day job, then you're a columnist with The Spectator, and of course you've, you've written some books as well, Alchemy being the most recent. Um, is, is that still broadly correct? Yes, that's true, yeah. yeah. Um, and... Um, I, I must say, actually, I recommend, even though, you know, at the weekend when I've got to write a Spectator article, and it's nearly always the weekend, you know, I sometimes curse the fact that I can't just take the whole weekend off. Mm. Um, I do recommend having more than one job yeah. in a funny kind of way, because I think it's a bit like stereo. Uh, it gives you an extra dimension on what you're doing with your life. And um, so... You know, I, I think the whole business of essentially having one small side hustle or extra string to your bow uh, is just, uh, I mean, in the case of journalism, it, it's almost essential that you have some other job because journalism is now so badly paid uh, compared with 20 or 30 years ago that it's pretty difficult surviving uh, as a columnist alone. But um, I also recommend it for completely different reasons, that having, um, uh, you know, having more than one uh, area to, on which to focus your attention uh, somehow gives you a kind of breadth, uh, which um, I, only I only discovered by accident.
You've also said in the past, be really good at two things as opposed to be outstanding at one. (laughs) Uh, That actually, I mean, I'm quite serious about this. It's a very interesting question. I was talking to someone on a podcast uh, a few weeks ago who was in Chicago. And in a funny kind of way, (coughs) I jokingly said, in a sense, if you want to have a reasonably pleasant life, it makes much more sense to live in Chicago than to live in New York. (laughs) And... um, in a way, the reason for that is that uh, the being at the very, very top of a single thing, New York is full of people. In Chicago, it's a very competitive city, I'm sure, but people are competing for some practical, realistic end. You know, they want, you know, they want to make more money so they can have a nicer house. Okay? Yeah. My joke is that in the most competitive place in the world, New York, to be honest, it will attract the hyper-obsessively, insanely competitive. And you'll end up competing with people who are really just competing for the sake of it. Yeah. And I've always said, you know, if you, um, there's an argument that you should always pursue number two, number three, number four, for the simple reason that at the very, very top, the, um, uh, you're competing with people who, to be honest, will compete even when there's no purpose to the competition. I also make the recommendation that uh, trying to be the best at a thing in which lots and lots of people are also trying to be best at, the best tennis player in the world, statistically speaking, you're going to fail. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the brutal truth is there may be people who just want it more than you do. There may be people who want it more than is healthy. Um, Simple fortune, you know, a mixture of genetics and timing, make it extraordinarily unlikely that you're ever going to be the best tennis player in the world. But if you combine two related things, so you're, you know, in the top decile or the top 5% of one thing and in the top 5% of another thing, Okay. Yeah. Now, by combining those two things, the odds that there are loads and loads of people competing at those two absolute same things is much, much smaller. And therefore, um, actually, the chance that you can develop a completely unique um, capability is much higher. So, you know, if you are someone who knows a huge amount about crime and you know a huge amount about insects, right, yeah. you're now a forensic um, entomologist, <laughs> right? And yeah. you might be the world's best forensic ent- entomologist. Trying to be the, worst be the world's best forensic scientist or trying to be the world's best entomologist is a much, much tougher ask than finding something in the intersection of the two skills. Of course. Got it. (laughs) I want to go back just while we're talking kind of work to a relatively recent Wikiman column that I think are um, in from the spectator that I think our listeners would would love to kind of get the top line from. And that was just your thoughts on the future of flexible working. Um, Did you just want to bring to life some of those themes? Because I found that piece fascinating. Funnily enough, there's another one coming up. Well, tomorrow okay. or, t- or today, if you get your copy very early, right? Uh, which is that there's a bill by Helen Wakeley, who's the MP for Faversham, which I think is a very intelligent nudge bill. And it makes every advertised job by default offer the possibility of working flexibly unless the employer, in other words, the advertiser, can state a good reason why the job can't be done flexibly. So it's a classic behavioural economics case. She's a very, very shrewd um, uh, person, MP, with a very good understanding of behavioural science. It essentially is, is a business of changing the default. At the moment, jobs are non-flexible unless by default someone decides to make them flexible. This simply just flips the norm. It flips it to 180 degrees. So a job will be flexible unless the employer decides otherwise, specifically, and has reason to um, decide that. Okay, that's fascinating. Now, the reason I think this is really important is that there's a great um, phrase which is occasionally used among IT specialists and in things like agile. Um, yep. Okay, and the phrase is paving the cow paths. Yeah. And paving the cow paths happens, it, it's meant as a criticism, um, when you essentially just add a layer of technology to an existing process without questioning whether the introduction of technology allows you to reinvent the process. 
And so the reason, the, the, um, if you like, the etymology of um, paving the, house, the cow paths comes from the city of Boston, where supposedly the city fathers, when they paved the roads, didn't think of whether there was a better way of laying out the roads or whether maybe you needed a grid system or uh, you know, a new network of roads. They basically just slapped cobblestones down on top of the existing random paths that have been formed by cattle drovers. And they didn't rethink the road network. They just upgraded it from mud to cobblestone. And I think that to a great extent we've done this with technology, that we've actually uh, overlaid, overlaid technology on existing patterns of work behavior without really rethinking them. I mean, one question I asked recently is, why, does, why when you have a video conference does it tend to last an hour? Yeah, completely. Okay, and I said, and people said, well, what do you mean? I mean, you know, surely they last as long as they need to. I said, no, no, no. A video conference really lasts an hour because a meeting lasts an hour. Mm-hmm. And in fairness, a meeting often lasts an hour because if someone had travelled to it, or if a lot of people had to schlep from one building to another, okay, it was pretty irritating if you travelled to something and it only lasted five minutes. Yeah. But in a video conference, that sunk cost in terms of travel doesn't exist. And there's no reason why you can't have lots of little five to ten minute video calls. I couldn't agree. The reason we don't is we just go, this is like a digital meeting, so it's going to last as long as a meeting. Yeah. And my contention is that we've taken uh, pre-existing patterns of behavior. I mean, one thing that drives me nuts is the fact that people go into the office on a busy train and then spend the first hour of the day doing emails. Mm. Okay, and my argument is, look, the screen on which you're doing the email would be no different if you were at home on a later train, mm. assuming you had some sort of connectivity. Um, and to be honest, you know, I'm not sure what you're doing in the office, which is a, an open plan space designed for collaboration. What on earth are you doing just sitting staring at a screen anyway? Yeah. And so um, I'm, I'm a big fan of flexible working, partly because work now, I think, work has always involved lots and lots of different modes. Uh, some of those modes are probably better done in a cafe, on a moving train, at home, uh, wherever you find it best. They're certainly not necessarily done in an open plan office. Why not use your time in the office to talk to people and to do the things that you can only do face to face and then move the things that are location independent, which technology has newly made location independent, move those things to late in the evening, if that's what you want to do. Makes makes no difference to me. And so the fact that we haven't rethought the pattern of work fundamentally uh, in response to uh, the coming of uh, an extraordinary concatenation of communication technologies just strikes me as a missed opportunity. Um, And I also think, by the way, as a creative person, I think that... Uh, occasional changes of scene and changes of mode are in any case just beneficial. Sure. Uh, you know, sometimes if you want to have an idea, um, you're much more likely to have it, uh, you know, uh, in a different place. And I don't, I don't know about you, if you look back on your career as a creative person, um, it's surprising, actually, how many of your best ideas haven't happened to you while you're sitting at a desk. Oh, completely. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And then, the, then in addition, there's the kind of get out there argument I have, which is that uh, we live in an unrealistic enough weird bubble world in London to begin with. Yeah. And um, in advertising. You've, I've heard you speak on that before as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's worth remembering that the, adverti- that the culture of the advertising industry is hugely unrepresentative. Um, I mean, a lot of talk, quite rightly, is about the gender aspect, uh, for example, uh, you know, or indeed the sort of social eth- aspect or the ethnic aspect. Uh, just as potent, by the way, the age group in which you, you, you sit is typically absurdly narrow. In London, it's possible to spend most of your life hanging out with people who are within three years of age of you. You know, it's very interesting once you move out of London, by the way, once you, once you move outside the M25, you notice that your, you know, your social contacts have a much wider age range, for yeah. instance. And, um, uh, it, and also the, the very nature of advertising makes it uh, a highly unrepresentative, self-selecting group of people to begin with. Principally, my argument is that what we've done with technology, which seems to be a fundamental waste, is we've essentially taken 1980s working patterns, uh, what time you turn up at work. Uh, and bear in mind, in the late 80s, when you left the office, there was an awful lot of stuff you could only do at the office. Yeah. 
Um, that has completely changed. So my argument is, well, if you are in the office, dedicate your your time to those things which are either geographically dependent or dependent on face-to-face contact and um, start being behaving more flexibly in other ways. If you can't do this with your staff, you don't trust them enough. Hi, I'm Sophie. I'm the brand manager here at Rocket. My job is to recognise opportunity for us as a business and to expand our offering. We love producing Rocket Fuel for the insight it gives us and our clients. So this week, I've chosen to share a moment from our episode with Paul Samuels. Paul is currently the executive vice president at AEG. And before that, he was head of sponsorships at O2. Originally recorded in 2019, this episode that we're going to share with you was recorded in an actual podcast studio, which feels like a lifetime ago. But I have chosen to share Paul's Rocket Fuel episode with you because it is the daydream we all need. This episode gives us all some excitement in 2021 and hope for an industry that is going to come back bigger, better and stronger than ever and hopefully more creative than ever too. Paul shares a huge amount of insight in this episode from his days at O2 and AEG, from the opportunity there is for brands in the live event space to creating the best possible experience for consumers. He shares examples of brand innovation when it comes to sponsorships that include artists like Drake turning the O2 into the O3 in line with his song lyrics. Live events will return one day and brands have one year, if not more, of experiences to make up for. It is the glimmer of excitement we all need in 2021. Here is Paul Samuel's Rocket Fuel. So, Paul, we're into the bit where we're going to talk about your your business, your role, um, and what it encompasses at AEG. We've spoken briefly about what it is. You mentioned the music venues, the music tours, uh, and the festivals, as well as some sports. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but give us some sense of the scale because it's huge isn't it well how many venues around the world we have probably about over 150 venues around the world wow. large venues um we own so as aeg we're owned by one person a guy called philip anschutz uh he you know basically bought an ice hockey team about 20 years ago or 25 years ago now i should say um which was a, a team that was about to go bankrupt and bought it as a hobby he wasn't in this industry at all he kind of was in oil and gas okay. um and had telecoms companies as well and he bought this ice hockey team called the LA Kings, who weren't doing very well um, at all, bought them, and then realized he needed to invest in them. And as part of the investment, he realized he needed a new venue to play in. So he basically bought a lot of land in, land in LA, downtown. And 25 years ago, downtown LA wasn't a place you really went to. Um, it was quite dangerous. And yeah. you know, there were riots down there and things like that you remember from the news, etc. But he bought all this land and sat on this land for a long time and then built them a new arena. Um, which is the Staples Centre in Los Angeles. Wow. And that was the start of AEG. We have a sports team um, and a venue. And that's kind of the um, the real legacy of our company is basically um, hardware and software company. The hardware is the venues that we own and the software is the content we put in those venues, right. um, be that sports teams or music. And the idea is is the two work really well together. So there are, you know, as we put tours around the world, we obviously try and put as many of the tours into the venues that we own, not always, etc. but we will do our best. Mm. Um, so the company now is split into various divisions. There's AG facilities, which is the venues that we own and operate. Some of them we own outright, like the O2 in London, where we, we, we basically built it and uh, invested in it and own it. And there's venues like the SSC Arena in Wembley, where we don't own it, but we run it on a long-term management contract. Okay. And it's owned by a company called Quentain. Um, so that's kind of the, the venue side of the business. Then there's AG Sports. I mentioned the... Um, uh, LA Kings. We also own part of the LA Lakers. We own the LA Galaxy um, in LA. We also, in more close to home in Berlin, we own an ice hockey team called the Ice Baron. Um, and in uh, Sweden, we own a, a football team called um, Hammerby. Okay. So, you know, we have various teams, but also we put on lots of um, sporting events. So, right now uh, in the California, we own the Tour of California Soccer Race. And this year will be our second year of owning the Tour of Germany. Um, Germany, the cycling in Germany used to be huge. There were a lot of doping scandals 10 years ago. It kind of died. And we believe, you know, we, it's time to invest and, uh, and create, it, create it again. What we won't do is get invest, invest in kind of, you know, football over here because we don't believe we can make a difference there. Yeah. But actually investing in teams or, or events which are where we can see growth and opportunity that uh, we will always get involved. You know, e-gaming is another example of us. In our sports division, we, go and get, you know, we are involved. We are invested in a team in... Um, LA in e-gaming and we're very into e-gaming coming to our of course to our venues and so that's the scope of you've mentioned your (coughs) phrase the hardware and the software 
Give us a flavour of how brands get involved in huge ways and in small ways. I'm guessing yeah. there aren't that many small ways, but go on. <laughs> so we, we as a company, very rarely do people know who AEG are. Yeah. And the reason for that is we don't promote ourselves as a brand. Mm. We let other brands, consumer brands, come in and take that ownership, be that the SSE in for Wembley or the O2 for the O2, um, where we let brands take ownership via naming rights of our, of our properties. Um, and so that's kind of the, the large scale we look at naming rights. But there's always opportunities for people to uh, invest and do things at our venues. We're looking for brands that really can enhance the experience for the consumer when they come to one of our venues or music festivals. It's not just about badging and putting a sign up. I mean, that's part of it, obviously, having signage and media opportunities. But actually, it's more about what that brand can do and help create uh, and enhance that experience. I mean... One of the things that you're doing, you've got the easiest job in the world because you're selling, this is a podcast about youth marketing, youth culture, and sports and live music are huge passion points, right? And for a brand to get involved in this is should be a, an exciting sell and an easy sell. Mm. Obviously, you're looking to maximize value. Do any brands get it wrong? Is there, are there, How easy is it to mess this up? So I, I do think... Um, First of all, if, if I wish it was an easy sell, right? Um, because you know the competition for us is not just you know uh, other music events. Obviously, you know there's lots of competition in the music industry, but we're fighting against you know brands that for sport. You know, think about the amount of football clubs and sports teams that are out there, all fighting mm. for the money. But also now fighting for money against the advertising budgets as well. You know, there's but you know, at the end of the day, a brand will have a marketing budget, and they've got to work out how to spend it. Some of it will be on TV. Um, you know. It was one in the past, it was us against advertising budgets we're trying to create. Now we're going against content budgets, online budgets, you know, social media budgets. They're all fighting for this one pot of money. Um, and it's about who could get the best reach um, and the, be the best social engagement. Um, and of course, what we try and do is sell the, the fact that we have great media impressions, but also much more engagement than you would get from a TV commercial. So you've already, you mentioned the signage. And also you were, <coughs> if you forgive me, Paul, you were quite visionary in terms of sponsorship when you were at the O2, where you are now. It's it's moving brands beyond a badging exercise, isn't uh, it? 100%. 100%. If you, recently we have, you know, we just finished our festival with Barclay Card British Summertime in Hyde Park. You know, for, for that, it wasn't, you know, yesterday, for Barclay Card, there's great signage opportunities, great, you know, media opportunities, but actually it's about the experiential piece they do on site. They, they really go and, and really make the Barclay Card customer have a great experience. And that's the key thing. Most of our sponsors always want everyone that's going to a venue or festival to have a great experience. But if you're a member of that brand, you might have a better experience. So at the O2, for example, Sky, one of our partners, they have a Sky backstage bar where if you're a Sky customer, you can build, you know, up weight your uh, experience by going into a much better lounge than you could do on normal concourse. So it's all trying to find unique things that really help um, enhance that brand and making it accessible for their partners. So this is about brands being enablers and almost... En exactly. Enablers for their customers to enhance their experience. Have AEG said no to brands? So there's sometimes where you don't think a brand is the right <coughs> fit for a particular opportunity. We will always try and find and match the right brand with the right property. Um, yes, there's been things where maybe haven't felt that are right, but most of the time, you know, we don't. We aren't going to go to certain brands for certain things. You know, we're not interested in. You know, we're not going to go to a pornography right uh, brand <laughs> to sponsor our venues. It's not it doesn't fit with our culture, mm. etc. That said, we also have brands at the O2, for instance, we have a deal with Logic, who's about, you know, a vaping partner. Okay. Um, because actually we see it as an opportunity to encourage people to, to, to stop smoking, traditional smoking, and going into, you know, other options that are out there in the market, like vaping. And do you see it, and I won't ask you to name names, do you see it in other places more clunkily done? I don't know, fast food and football, although McDonald's would say their partnership with the FA is a wonderful success. Do you... Well, do you, do you know, I think it's how it's done. So McDonald's okay. and the FA, you think what they actually do, a lot of it's about grassroots um, and getting kids playing football. Mm. And so actually, and it's countering what, you know, all the bad things that potentially... Um, you know, fast food may do, they are doing something about it and yep. they are trying to make healthier options and they are trying to promote um, people playing football. So I think that is done really well. There was recently a, um, a festival, I think it was in somewhere in America, I can't remember where it was, where it was sponsored by KFC and they brought on this kind of DJ chicken 
to perform and it was just seen as a failure. It just didn't work. So brands sometimes do get it wrong. Right. And it's what, what the brands that work really well, we have a huge team here that help our brands activate. Okay. We know what works, what doesn't work. So when a brand does come to us with some ideas, which sometimes may be a bit silly and may not be, you know, be, <laughs> might, might not work, we help to advise them and kind of, you know, curve them into the right direction to basically um, to do it correctly. That said, I put my hat on when I was at O2. I remember people saying to me, no, you shouldn't do it this way. And I kind of said, no, we're doing it this way. And it worked. So sometimes brands do challenge us and they say, no, we want to do this. And, and it works. So you have to be, be able to take it, you know, as, in our seat, you have to be willing to take advice sometimes as well and give brands benefit of the doubt because okay. actually it's something come up with some really creative ideas. And you would count <coughs> yourself in AEG as the live events and experiences specialists and the brands can harness what the brand means to their customers in the, in the that, best that's way. That's correct. And the collaborative approach is where the magic happens. So. Exactly. And, you know, that, that, is, that is really key. Sometimes, you know, it's the brand that come up, you know, a good example, O2 came up with a great idea. Nothing to do with us. It was an O2 idea when Drake recently played the, the O2. Uh, he has a, a lyric, one of his songs, where the O2 becomes the O3. And you know me, turn the O2 into the O3. Now, from a brand perspective, you would normally think a brand would never want to mess with its logo or its name. But O2 saw the opportunity. And they said to us, we want to rename the O2, the O3, for the 10 days or so that Drake's there. And all they did, really, was take the sign down on the front of the building and put it with an O3 sign. It had millions and millions of impressions. Drake took photos of it, which had millions of impressions and likes. But nearly every fan that went into the O2 for that show had a, a selfie in front of the O3 sign. And I know the O2 is a huge venue and I know it's part of a much bigger relationship, but that, that cost is, I mean, next to nothing. Is that right? In terms of to make that tactical shift and to get the amplification. For that one sign. Yeah. That sign probably cost yeah. £100, maybe right. something, you know, or £200 to rechange the sign. Mm. That's an example of, of something which is incredibly um, talented idea. Um, and I, I love to take credit for it and it wasn't me <laughs> on this occasion uh, it, it worked really well because yeah. it was taking a simple thing playing with a brand being clever being you know trying to be you know humour the brand you know by changing its name working with an artist that comes there and it just shows how easy it was so often brands are, I feel that they can't you know when you do sponsorship the, the, one side of it is the barrier because the cost of actually um, not only spaying sponsorship fees but also activating sponsorship is expensive. Yeah. But you can sometimes be really clever and do things on the, you know, much more cheaper from the activation side. Forgive me, I'm going <coughs> to jump into kind of theory now, and it mm. might be outdated theory, but it used to be, back when I worked at media agencies, sort of in the content team, that the old adage was, was it a rule of four and one? So for every one pound you spent on the sponsorship, you had to spend another four activating. Is that still true? Is there a rule no. of thumb? Or, or? I think the rule of thumb we normally use is, you know, one on one. Okay. Uh, reality is, you know, if you're spending a pound, you should be on a sponsorship, you should be activating a pound. That's up. Some will spend more, some will obviously spend uh, less. You don't need to spend one on one. Of course, when you do the larger sponsorships, when you're doing multi million pound sponsorships, you pre don't need <laughs> to spend one to one because right. actually that'd be lovely, but probably unrealistic as well. Especially if you, you know, if you think about, yeah, you know, some football teams now are going for 40, 000, 40 million pounds. Right. I can tell you, those, those brands are not spending 40 million pounds activating. Sure. Most of those brands, you know, they are probably spending less than a million activating because right. they've got no money left after yeah. they spent it on the. Uh, the shirt sponsorship. And are there, you look at different opportunities depending on the brands, <coughs> what they, um, you look at different opportunities depending on what the brand want to achieve. Mm. So if it's a direct sales, if it's brand perception, brand awareness, the right sponsorship our sponsorship activation might be available for them. A hundred percent. We, we're very, very keen that when we do partnerships with, with brands, we set KPIs that change every year to ensure we're on the same page right at the beginning of what they're trying to achieve. Because if they say at the beginning, we're trying to achieve sales or trying to or consideration or intent to purchase, whatever the, they're deciding is the, the thing they're trying to achieve, we're very clear on that. So we can ensure that our team are helping to activate all those ideas to help reach that goal. Um, and then we've got no issue if six months, after six months, someone says, hang on a minute, our KPIs of the business have changed. That's fine as well. But being very clear about our objectives which makes it work because at the end of the day how, the only way you can tell if a partnership has worked is if you knew what the objectives of the partnership were at the beginning and so it's very clear for anyone really anything you do in life and anything in your career 
It's what is your objectives and how can you reach those goals? What's the partnership that you're most proud of since you've been at AEG? So for me, taking the O2-1 away, because obviously I was on the other side of the table originally for that and renewing it on this side for another 10 years, obviously I'm very proud of. I think for me would be probably the deal with Sky. Um, It's 10 years we've had the deal with Sky at the O2. Wow. And I basically always say to my team, never send cold call emails um, because, you know, you send an email, it gets deleted. Like, you know, I get cold call emails and everyone respond to them. But, and I always tell people, you know, you've got to be more creative about that to get the kind of the message out there and get someone to kind of call you back. And there's different techniques you can do for that. And I, we invite enjoy- them to be on a podcast, for example. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> <you> exactly. Um, <laughs> so reality is we, um, we we try different techniques all the time. And we tried to get hold of the right person at Sky about 15 times by this point and got nowhere. I remember we were being, I think it was like a Friday afternoon. And I was like, you know, looking at my budgets going, God, I've got, I've got a long way to go to hit my targets for this year. And I did what I said I, I hate doing is just send a cold call email. And I got the email address of the MD at Sky at the time, a guy called Brian Sullivan. Um, and I just sent him this email. And to my surprise, two minutes later, it pinged back going, yes, let's meet. I kind of like went, uh, is this right? Is this correct? <laughs> Had to check I sent it to the right person. And he came down with his team. Um, and you know, I mean, he came down with one of his colleagues, uh, a guy called uh, Stephen Van Ruin who actually is uh, now the CEO at Sky. Wow. Um, and he took over, you know, leading the negotiations. Um, and basically, um, we did the Sky deal. And it's been a great success for them and it's been great for us as well. And this encompasses Sky's presence at the O2. And presence at the O2 with their Sky backstage bar, yeah. but also their, um, their activation zone where you, you can, they have a Sky studio there mm. where you can read the news, which is great fun and highly recommend. Um, and they, they really bring to life all the, Things that they're trying to do in that quarter, that could, that could be about box sets or it could be about a, a, a summer of sports. They use their space to really promote um, the, what they're doing on TV. It gives them a chance as a, a place where they can plan out throughout the year how to bring Sky to life uh, in an entertainment place, which we are in the day. Um, final question in this section about your, your roles and your business. When you when you've touched on it already, when you left O2 and came to AEG, was there a sense of poacher turned gamekeeper, or was there? Was it, it was it a moment? Yeah, how did how did that well, feel, and how was that perceived? Whenever I, whenever when I came to AG, it was very. It took me a while to get my head out or, or to say I'm not here now to protect the contract that O2 has and activate for O2. Of course, though we do that day by day. I'm there to sell to other brands and do something. Different. And it was a very strange. It took a while. I, I actually went from. I was at O2 for six years, um, loved the job, et cetera. And uh, actually, uh, maybe it's the right time to talk about how I ended up at AEG. So I hired an agency to help evaluate the naming rights of the deal when I was at O2. Because no, at the time, no, naming rights didn't exist. Now, if you go to most venues around the UK, they've all got naming rights for mm. music venues. At the time, they didn't exist. No one had naming rights. So there was no specialists in this market. Whereas in America, there are lots of specialists. So I hired a... Um, I hired a company called the Bonham Group, who were based out of Denver, who were specialized, specialized in, this, in this sector. They helped evaluate it, and that helped kind of give the evaluation of what this thing was worth to help get the, the business to approve doing the deal. Um, after the deal was signed in 2005, about 2006, the end of 2006, I got a phone call from the Bonham Group, who basically said to me, uh, they decided to expand their offices into the UK and have a European team, and would I like to be the CEO? Wow. And I was like, wow. And they made me an offer that I could, it was a big offer and I was very excited about it. And I thought about it, but I chickened out. I was like, I'm not sure this is right for me going from. Why? What? I don't know what it was. I'll tell you what it was. Oh, i tell you what. I worked for a big company where I was a part of a big team and I felt very confident. And I, it was a great brand to work with. And there was some good leadership uh, at, at, the, <laughs> at the company as well. Um, and I felt you know, passionate about what I was doing. Also, this biggest project that this naming rights deal that I had done was going to open in a year's time. And I kind of wanted to be there for the opening versus this is going to a startup uh, in the UK on my own and setting up a business. Though I was getting paid a salary um, Mm. and it made me this offer and I turned it down because I was a bit chicken, to be honest. Mm. And sometimes you've got to take risk and risk and reward. And then they thought I was negotiating. So they made me a bigger offer. And I was like, oh, my God, this is this is what do I do? And I, I, I panicked. I was like, this is such a good offer. How do I not take this role? And again, after six serious considerate consideration, 
I backed out. I think I could I think because I want to be at the opening for the O2. Yeah. Um, and I love my job as head of sponsorship. Of o2. I just really, really enjoyed what I did. And then it was I I got engaged to my now wife. Uh, be together twelve years, and we were in um, just got engaged. and went away on holiday to Marbella, and we were in the sea, being romantic. In those days, I was holding her in the <laughs> sea as you, you do in early early years of marriage. Um, and she said to me, "When I give up work, when we have kids," and I dropped her in the sea. <laughs> and I said, "What do you mean?" She goes, "Well, I, I want to be a stay at home mum. I don't want to don't work." And you know what? And, there's, and, in, and in life, you'll find there's people that want to do that, and mm. there's people that want to have careers. And that was her decision. That's what she wanted to do. And for the first time, it came to reality at that one point that my salary at O2 was now going to have to support not only a partner, but also children. And I was like, I'm going to have to get a job and probably earn some more money. And mm. I, I got out of the sea. And at that point, I, I went and called the Bonham Group in the US. And I phoned them and it was early morning. And I said, have you found anyone for that role yet? And they actually said, well, someone's actually flying over to Denver as we speak, they're in the air. Um, someone we've interviewed on the phone, uh, et cetera. And we're gonna interview them face to face. And tonight, if we like them, we're gonna offer them the job. Wow. But we'd still rather have you, if you agree a deal before he lands. And I then went to, I, was stay, I wasn't even staying at this hotel. Using, I went to this hotel on the beach that I wasn't even using, was pretending I was staying there and asked to use their fax machine. And we sent back faxes of a term sheet back there and then. And by the end of that day, I signed the term sheet and uh, I quit my job at O2 and went to the Bonham Group. Wow. And it was probably the best and worst decision that I made. It was the best because it got me out of my comfort zone. That's the key thing, I think. We get in our comfort zones in life. And that was certainly my comfort zone in O2. Can I interrupt and ask a silly question? Yeah. Did O2 still invite you to the opening of the O2? Yes, they did. I'm sure they did. Yes, they did. Yeah, yeah. yes, Good. they did. So I was you still got that. Moment. I still got that part. And I, was still, I was still very, you know, involved in that. But I was in my comfort zone and need to get out of it. And that to me was, um, that was a good thing. The bad thing was, and it was a good thing I was getting a salary as a startup, but setting up a startup, it's great. When you work for a company like O2 and you're a brand and you're a head of sponsorship and you've got this huge amounts of money and, and budgets, everyone loves you. Everyone accepts your call. Everyone takes your call. When you're a one-man band um, making calls, hey, it's Paul here from the Bonham Group. Uh, Hi, yes, we used, to, we used to work at O2 or we used to mm. They've got no, you're no good to them. You've got no, you've got nothing to give them. So it was a very, very hard piece. That said, we did hit our, we had a, a target for the year of about a million pound in revenue. We got that target. Um, I was delighted, don't know how, uh, mm. but we, we got there. It, it worked really well. We had lots of clients, but the actual, as we started getting clients, we need to hire more staff. And the guy, our owner was going through some trouble in the US and he couldn't really afford to hire more staff. And we were having these clients and we couldn't service and thankfully for me, um, I bumped into the, the old CEO of AEG at the O2 one night. I used to go back there regularly because mm. the O2 had opened in, in, July, in June 2007. So it was about maybe September 2007. I bumped into him and he was over from the US. And he said, how's it going? And I, I, he basically said, I hear that, you know, they're having a few troubles in the, the Bonham Group in the US. Would you like to, um, you should come work for us. I said, he said, no, he actually said, why did you work, not, why did you work for the Bonham Group and not for us? I said, you never offered me a job. That, the next day he called me and said, I've done a deal with Dean Bonham. I'm going to buy the Bonham Group UK, which is the bit you set up, um, and you're going to come work for us. I had shares in the business. You've got to give up your shares for nothing. And I, but then you can come work for AG. And I basically took the option and said yes. A lot of my friends went, why are you giving up your shares? Mm. Um, and by this point, I would have owned, because when you sell a company, you're kind of, mm. your shares kind of uh, flourish. And uh, I ended up, would have owned 24% of the company. And I said... Only 24% of a company that's worth nothing mm. is nothing. Yeah. And I knew that I wanted to get out. And I ended up working at AEG. The original plan was to kind of carry on the business owned by AEG. But yeah. overnight, we were asked to kind of take on more and more activities of, of AEG. And rather than selling things for 10% as an agency, we should be working for AEG full time. And we came in-house at AEG. My team came with me. Couple, uh, one of them still with me now. Oh, wow. Uh, all, that time, all these years later. Is the Bonham Group still going in the States? No, the, that, that's the, not the funny thing. Unfortunately, a year later, the Bonham Group unfortunately went bankrupt wow. in the States. So if I had stayed at the Bonham Group, I would have lost my job anyway. And what was that? Loads of other agencies coming into the sponsorship activation? There was a bit of that. The and I think there were some personal issues okay. uh, in the US with the owner, which caused you know it to close. So reality is 
it was the best thing. So when I say it was the, it was the worst thing because look what could have happened, but it was the best thing because it got me into AEG. Um, and you know, and 12 years later, I'm still here. Hello, I'm Georgia, campaign executive at Rocket. I work predominantly with children's publishers on everything from picture books to YA. My absolute favourite episode of Rocket Fool was with the wonderful Mariel Richards. At the time of recording, she was head of partnerships at Galdem. She is now their CEO. Mariel gives an inspiring insight into her journey working at Galdem, from volunteering in her free time to running the show. From knowing when to say no, understanding your audience and the commitment to authenticity, Galdem are a force for good and an inspiration to young women. Here's Mariel Richards on Rocket Fuel. Okay, so final section of the Rocket Fuel podcast is often the shortest section, but often the most uh, illuminating because it's where we asked our guest for some practical takeaways, some actionable insights for our audience, people that work in media, tech, marketing, youth culture, places like that, for some things that they can use in their day-to-day job. So no pressure uh, Marianne. Um, first question is a deliberately broad one. What do you know about young audiences? Oh, I know they are just as complicated and uh, just as diverse as any other um, audience. And I think that the main difference is often they are far less forgiving. So um, with, especially with our community, especially with the young people that we speak to, you really do have to get it right the first time. Um, there are not many second chances, especially when it comes to advertising um, and kind of brand communication. I think you may have slightly preempted my second question in this bit, but let's, uh, let's go for it anyway. What do you think is important <laughs> to young audiences? Yeah, I think authenticity, even though, you know, I'm sure everyone says this, um, authenticity is super important. It's, it's, I think, the one thing that is kind of unforgivable if you get it wrong. Um, we all know when we see advertising, when we see sponsored content in partnership with, provided by, whenever we see those labels, we know that that money has exchanged hands. We know that there has been a specific ask of whoever is presenting that content to you to produce something and to say a particular thing. So what needs to happen is, is a complete kind of a complete awareness of that. We all know what's going on in advertising. Let's not patronize our audience. <laughs> Let's make sure that when we are sponsoring content and we are working with content creators, be they magazines, be they influencers, we're working with them because we trust their expertise and we understand that what they produce is specific and right for their audience. And I think that's, I think that's what's really important, especially when we're kind of, working with these this this, this um, area of kind of like influencers and and influencer type publications that I think Galdem kind of sits inside of is um you know people are people are coming to these organizations young people are coming to these organizations because they trust that what's being presented there is authentic and is true and matches with their values so any kind of forceful messaging anything that feels inauthentic anything that is glaringly obvious as like an attempt to disguise advertising is going to fail you just need to be honest um, and I think then your messaging will be respected and listened to next question what do you think has changed about the way this audience behave and what do you think will change next it's one of those things whenever I'm kind of whenever I'm asked questions that are similar to this, my, my thing is I don't think that a huge amount has changed about the audience inherently. I don't think that, you know, this generation of young people, Gen Z, I don't think that they have a wildly different outlook on life to the one that I had when I was, you know, 18. What I think has changed is the technology. You know, young people have always been agitators for change. They have always been the ones looking around them, seeing the world that they're gonna inherit and thinking, that's not right. I don't want that. I want it to be better. Every single generation of young people has gone through that at some point. The difference is now young people have the technology and the space within which to have their voices heard on a massive scale. And I think that's why we feel uh, particularly nervous when we're talking about or talking to Gen Z is because we know that this this generation of young people have more power than potentially we did when we were that when we were that old. Um, so it is about recognizing that, you know, it's the same, it's the same motivation. It's the same kind of need for something better, that same want to change the world. It's just now they potentially have as much skin in the game as you do. And they have as much power as you do to, to make that change. 
who do you think gets it right and who do you think gets it wrong? You haven't got to name names, but are there any common themes to, to brands or organisations that are getting it right? You know what? There's um yeah, there's a few brands. I'm gonna but in terms of like uh like commercial brands, um big names, I think that one brand I look to a lot that I think are getting it right a lot are Converse. Um Converse are a very open and honest brand. They do a lot of work with very small content creators. Um and whenever I see content that's been produced in partnership with them it does feel very like open and natural and it, it does kind of give me a lot of affection for the brand because obviously I can see the relationships they're forming there are are authentic and, and, and are, are good. In terms of other organizations that I look to almost uh, competitors I guess or like peers because I'm all about collaboration mm. <laughs> I, I really 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 love uh, three other magazines in particular Amalia who speak to Muslim women uh, Gay Times, who are an incredible platform, incredible, huge international platform, obviously speaking to the LGBTQIA community, and Guap, who are a British magazine um, based out of based out of South London, who speak to youth culture, primarily to people of colour um, in youth culture. Wow, okay, so they are top three recommendations, and I shall check them all out. Nice one. Um, Marielle, um, Give us one key takeaway from our chat, whether that's something that we have spoken about or something that my rubbish questions haven't allowed me <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> I will take either. Um, I think, you know what, it's something that I guess we haven't articulated, but I feel has been like a theme going through is that, um, you know, right now is the moment to be honest um, in communications. And I think that often... Uh, there is a little bit of awkwardness and, 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 and shame in advertising in that we want to make people do something. We want to change their behavior in this way, but we don't want to be too obvious about it. We don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to just mm. be like, buy this trainer. <laughs> we want to be like, this trainer is going to change your life. And this trainer agrees with your values. But you know what? I think what's important right now is to just be totally honest. You know, Consumers right now, uh, they have more time on their hands uh, than ever before, but we're seeing that actually attention spans with, with traditional me uh, media and advertising channels is so, it fluctuates so much. And I think that that is to do with a kind of renegotiation with our, our attitudes towards brands and advertisers. We are starting to figure out what specifically we want and specifically makes us happy now that our worlds have been kind of restricted and confined in, in a new way. So it's time for us as publications and also as advertisers to really, really, really dig deep and just be honest and just be authentic with consumers about what the behavior is that we want and need and why it is we want and need that. This is a Rocket Audio production.